Good morning. It's so good to see you all. I um, pray you're doing well. Um, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at Hunt Community Church. Glad you joined us this morning. What an incredible Sunday to come. Hopefully you found a parking spot somewhere in maybe around the next like three or four blocks. Um, I know parking is a little crazy. Appreciate your patience with that. Just um, serving others, allowing try to ask our members not to park uh, unless they need to in the lot so the guests can have a spot. So hopefully you found a, if you're a guest this morning, you found a spot nearby. Uh, glad you're here. As Dustin mentioned, we're going to have incredible uh, service. We've recognizing, I, th- I think, eight, uh, affirming eight new members this morning, which is incredible, I think. Um, and then uh, we've got a few baptisms. We do baptisms downstairs in our fellowship hall. So parents, if you have a child who's going to be you know, down in the kids' wing, I know the tendency might be to sign them out and just go right out the exit door and go about your day, but I'd really encourage you to get your child, come downstairs after the service, allow them to see the baptisms. They'll start asking questions. Mom, Dad, what is that? What's going on? Why are they doing that? So it gives you an opportunity to to talk about Christ, um, following him, being obedient to him. So um, with that said, kids, you guys can go to class. I'm not sure how many of you have been watching the uh, NCAA uh, men's basketball tournament. Uh, I know the first round, it lived up to uh, you know, what is called March Madness. Um, one of the things you can always expect from March Madness is these crazy upsets. And, um, and, then, and then, then you always see, it's, it's interesting to me, um, someone who loves watching sports, it's funny how like it's the same teams kind of make their way into the tournament every year. And what you notice is like as the players come and go, because they don't really stay very long, they, don't, they usually don't stay four years anymore, um, you, you see these, these teams um, led by the coaches. Kind of college basketball now is mainly we know the coaches, not the players, because the players come and go, the coaches stay. And so you see these coaches year after year make the tournament, and it just shows you how important leadership is. They create this culture, culture of winning, and uh, kids want to play for them, and and they're just, you see the well-coached teams just continue to have success year after year. And I think it serves uh, as a reminder for us that it's, it's important to have really good leadership. And it's not any different in the church. One of the nine marks of a healthy church is biblical leadership. And um, one of the offices or positions that God has left to lead and care for his church, his bride, is the office of elder. The other office that God designed to care for his church is called deacons. And that's where we are this morning. We're, if you're a guest, we've been walking through the book of First Timothy. We're actually going through the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. This morning, we're in First Timothy chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Um, we're going to see that elders are to be servant leaders. Uh, and deacons are to be leading servants. And 1 Timothy 3 describes these two positions. Paul's first letter to Timothy is an extremely valuable resource for the church. It, it kind of shows us how a church should be structured, um, what a healthy church should look like. And in this letter, Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy, he is, um, he's Paul's understudy. They have a close friendship, partnership in the gospel. And Paul tells Timothy in chapter 1, he wants him to remain in Ephesus. So that's where they are. That's a congregation in Ephesus. And he charges him, Timothy, uh, to, to, to watch these certain persons and, and not allow them to teach a different doctrine. So we've seen the false teaching that was happening at the church at Ephesus last week's passage. We, 
we read where uh, Paul specifically identifies two men um, who were false teachers, and Paul explains to Timothy that the leadership was corrupt, and if the church was going to thrive, then something had to be done with these um, false teachers. Corrupt leadership will always trickle down into the congregation. Paul's purpose for writing to Timothy was to help structure the church in such a way that it would make it difficult for this false doctrine and false teachers to get a foothold in the local church. He writes in chapter 3, his purpose, we see in verses 14 and 15, right after the sections on an elder, overseer, and deacon, in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, he states this. He says, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So we see here in verse 15 that this is the church of the living God. He's alive today. He's not dead. We serve a living God. It's really important that we understand that the church belongs to God. The church is not man's creation, and it's not man's possession. It is God's. These two positions that we're looking at this morning is what God established, not man, what God established to help guard the purity of his bride. In chapter 3, we see Paul giving instructions to Timothy about who should be in leadership and what these positions should be. So let's turn our attention now to our passage, 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13. God's word says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. The wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, just leaving us with instructions on how we, the church, the bride, uh, should function, how we are to establish leadership. Uh, And Lord, I pray that we would see um, you being the chief shepherd over all of us. And so Lord, um, help us just to be... uh, ready that we're leaning in this morning to this text 
that we're listening from you. Lord, speak to us this morning. Give us ears to hear. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we see in verse 1 that this position is called overseer. An overseer is one that a man, he must feel called to. It says that the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The office of overseer or elder, pastor, bishop, shepherd, those terms are all interchangeably all throughout the New Testament. The office of overseer is called by the stirring of the Holy Spirit. God creates inside a man this desire to lead in this way. The overseer dedicates his life to ruling, teaching, administering, giving oversight to the congregation. And we see in verse 1 that the calling of overseer, it's, one that's, it's an internal calling. The man desires a noble task. You can't measure desire, right? It's, it's, it's subjective. It's internal. Internal callings are subjective, which means that they can also be very dangerous. Have you ever watched the audition week of American Idol? There are a lot of people who desire to sing. But we all know that they, even though they desire to sing, they probably should not sing. And they are in complete, you know, they're completely shocked when the judges tell them that they should find something else to do. What? I, I, I just, I don't understand. My mom and my grandma have told me I'm, I'm such a good singer that I'm going to be the next American Idol. You've got to be wrong. Let me, try, let me try to sing another song. And you're like, no, 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 we've... We've heard plenty. We, we know enough. You're not the next American Idol. See, the internal calling by itself, it's really challenging to argue against, isn't it? People say, well, God, I just feel like God's calling me to do this. Well, how do you argue with that? How do you argue when someone believes that God is calling them, telling them to do something? This is why a true calling to this position of overseer and elder, it's both internal and external. Yes, there's this desire, this internal call, but then we see here that there's also the confirming from the church, the external call. It's not just someone's desire. Someone could have the desire to be a pastor, but if they don't meet these qualifications listed here, these characteristics then God is not calling them into this position, period. It may seem a little harsh, but God doesn't just allow anyone to be a pastor. But being a pastor or elder, it, it has huge eternal ramifications. Listen to what James 3 says about being a pastor, this teaching position. James 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So this is a protection for people. It's protecting them. That maybe they shouldn't be teachers because they're going to be judged with greater strictness. What this verse shows us is that when it's all said and done, when the world is no more, we're standing before a good, holy, and righteous judge. These elders, teachers, they'll be judged with greater strictness. And this should frighten anyone 
who may have this internal calling to be an elder. You want to make sure that there's this external affirmation from the congregation. That, that the only reason you would accept this calling is because you know that this is the life that God is calling you to and that the other elders and congregation have also confirmed that same calling. Then you can stand with confidence to know that God is calling you to this position. So what does the external calling look like? How does this church at Ephesus know what an elder, overseer, should even look like? Verses 2 through 7 give us these qualifications for elder or pastor. And nearly all these qualifications are matter of character rather than competency or skills. The only giftedness that we see in this entire list is to be able to teach. That's it. A lot of people, when they look at these qualifications, they, they, they put them in four helpful categories. So I'm going to use these categories this morning. So here are the categories. Moral character, home life, maturity, and reputation. That's kind of, you could put each one of these qualifications into one of those four categories. So let's walk through this this morning. Moral character, let's look at that first. Verse 2, must be above reproach. Most translations translate this word as reproach, but maybe you've got a Bible in front of you this morning that might translate this as blameless. Reproach does not mean perfect. It simply means that there is no outstanding charge that could be brought against this man. So that's moral character. Um, next, we see the category of home life. Uh, so he is to be the husband of one wife. Now, most of these qualifications, they're going to be pretty straightforward. Um, but this one is a bit um, ambiguous. It's, it's, it's caused a lot of people to write a, a lot of books on this phrase, the husband of one wife. It literally, in the Greek, means a one-woman man. That's literally what it says. And so when we translate it, your translators probably wrote the husband of one wife. What does it mean, though, to be a one-woman man? And theologians have spent more time on this phrase than all the others combined. It's not as easy as it seems. First, there's some things we can mark off. It cannot mean that a pastor has to be married. Some will look at this and they'll say, see, a pastor needs to be someone who's married. Single men cannot be pastors. That's not what this means. Um, if you think that a pastor um, cannot be single, that's how you understand this verse, then you just eliminated both the Apostle Paul, who is referred to as an elder in the New Testament, and Jesus. be pretty good to have him as an elder in your church, right? But you just eliminated both of them because they were single. Now, most commentaries believe that the natural reading of this text is that the husband of one wife actually is referring to polygamy. That polygamy would have been really common in Ephesus. And so that's what this is pushing back, that, that the husband of one wife simply means that an elder needs to be married to one woman. He is a one-woman man, meaning he can't have two wives. He just has one wife. Uh, you know, but one of the pushbacks of this, uh, this interpretation is that polygamy would be prohibited to all Christians. So why is this a qualification expected of the elders? Wouldn't that just be a qualification for all Christians 
to be married to just one wife. So some understand this to mean that the husband of one wife is referring to divorced men, that you cannot be divorced and then marry another because then you would have two wives. But why wouldn't Paul just simply phrase it that way? In fact, some have argued that if you are remarried after a biblical divorce, then you would still be the husband of one wife. The divorce issue is really complicated. What if a man is divorced prior to becoming a Christian? The church wouldn't hold this man to the other qualifications that we're reading prior to coming to Christ, so why would they treat the divorce any differently? And if we're honest, there are plenty of men who are husbands of one wife but have never really been a husband of one wife, meaning they've had affairs with their jobs, hobbies, or even lust for other women. Here's another possibility. What, what if a man is divorced post-salvation but remains single? This would be like for those of you who know Charles Stanley. Um, Charles Stanley was pastor for years. Wife left him, abandoned him. He's remained single. So what if a man is divorced post-salvation but remains single? He would still be the husband of one wife. So you can see how this phrase has, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of cloudy. It's kind of confusing. What do we do with it? Well, I, what I think it means, take that for what it's worth, it means that, that, that the husband of one wife, that, that he has eyes for his wife and his wife only. He is a one-woman kind of man. He's not flirtatious with the ladies. He doesn't go around giving long, tight hugs, a little kiss on the cheek, in the name of Jesus. And there are pastors who are known for this. They give special attention to the ladies. They're very flirty. But an elder is someone who is committed to his bride. He loves her deeply. He's committed to her. He's willing to lay down his life for his bride. That's what I think Paul is getting at when he says that the husband of one wife. And we can see by the language, the pronouns used here, that uh, this shows us that the elder has to be a man. We spent a little bit of time on this last week. Um, but this is not because of, of ability or value, but rather order. I think my wife is a far more gifted communicator than I am. Many of you have heard that, and you'd say, amen. But this is not an issue of could, but rather it's an issue of should. Could Olivia do what I do? Yes, she could. She's extremely gifted. But should she? I think Scripture is clear that she should not. We saw last week from Hebrews 13 that a congregation, um, verse 17, uh, Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who give, who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So let's just think this out. If Olivia was the pastor, a pastor of a church, and I attended that church, then for me, I would need to submit to her leadership. That's what Hebrews 13, 17 says. But we also see from Scripture that wives are to submit to their own husbands. So how in the world would that work? On Sundays, I would have to submit to her because she'd be my pastor, but then like the rest of the week, 
She would submit to me because I'm her husband. You see how this gets really confusing? It also creates this bad view of what church is, that church is limited to, and church leadership is limited to Sunday mornings. It creates confusion in the church and in the home. But God is not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. So I, and I think that's his purpose in First Timothy. He's, he's writing this so you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. He, he wants the church to have order and structure, not to be in chaos. Now, over the years, with this stance, I've had many people ask me, why are you so against women in ministry? Which, I hate that question, because I know what they mean, but it's a really silly question. And my, response is, my response is always, I actually love seeing women in ministry. I'm a huge advocate for women being in ministry. My wife ministers the gospel daily to other moms, to college students, to our own kids. Just because we believe the office of elder is to be held by men does not diminish the role of women they have in ministry. We need women to minister the gospel. You ladies are extremely, extremely valuable to the life of this church. If you weren't in ministry, this church would not be healthy. But you ladies, you are ministering the gospel every day. And so I am not against women in ministry. I am very much an advocate for it. Next we see in verse 4 that he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his household well, how will he care for God's church? We see this connection here. That how he cares and manages his own household is somehow related to how he will manage God's church, the household of God. How an elder leads his family will reveal a lot about how he will lead God's church. An elder has to be able to deal with conflict. That's why Paul is instructing Timothy to stay in Ephesus, isn't it? Timothy was to confront the sin in the church at Ephesus. He must be able to reconcile broken relationships. He can't be passive. Elders cannot be passive, um, just like husbands should not be passive. Husbands, fathers should be active, leading in their family, not passive. Far too many men, husbands, fathers, are passive. They just shuck the responsibility to others, namely their wives. Let the wives lead. God's calling the men to lead here. So Paul is connecting the elder's ability to manage and resolve conflict in his own home to how well he will manage and resolve conflict in the church. One author writes this. He says, unruly homes do not offer the right kind of training experience for ruling the church. This is a principle which has often been overlooked when the choice of prospective ministers have been made. So, so far we've addressed the elder's moral character, his home life, and now we see that an elder must have maturity. He, he can't be immature. He, even though he may be very gifted, he, he has to have maturity. So let's look back to verse 2. He has to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and so each of these attributes here, they're, they're going to help him manage and care for the church. He's got to be patient, not, not, not pushing, but leading. He is to be able to teach. So, so this is the one, this is where we see 
There's some skill, some ability here. Uh, able to teach, this does not mean that they have to preach and teach every week, but they are able to teach and disciple others in sound doctrine. If you just look, if you've got your Bibles open, just look over maybe uh, uh, to the next page in chapter 5, verse 17. Paul says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, Paul, will, he makes some distinctions here. We'll, go, we'll get to this in a few weeks, but there's some distinctions in elders now. He says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, meaning that there are other elders who really don't labor in preaching and teaching. That there's difference. There's, there's elders, but some labor in preaching and teaching, and there's those that don't. So from time to time, people will ask, hey, hey, why doesn't, um, I know we have four elders. You preach, Dustin preaches, I've heard Jay preach. Well, why doesn't Bruce ever preach? Shouldn't, shouldn't he preach if he's going to be an elder? My answer is always, not every elder labors in preaching and teaching. It's possible for an elder to meet the qualification of being able to teach and be one of the ones that's not laboring in preaching and teaching. Bruce, in fact, teaches every week in community group. He, he teaches every week at work when he's sharing the gospel with his employees. He's having conversations, discipling other men. And so he's, not, he's one of those, I think, that First Timothy 5 would describe. He's just an elder who doesn't labor in preaching and teaching. So now Paul continues to list other areas of maturity in verse 3. He, he is not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Uh, so uh, uh, an elder can't be someone who is quick-tempered, an angry man. Like, that, that's not healthy. It's not good. He needs to be, he needs to be slow to anger. Uh, he's not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. And we've already addressed verse 4 and 5, so let's drop down to verse 6. He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Now, this verse is why our church has stated that, that you must be a member of our church for at least three years before you can become a lay elder. And I'll be the first one to admit to you that there's, you can't find that number anywhere in the Bible. But this is just our way of trying to apply verse 6. And also to allow us just to have time to see these other attributes in someone's life. We just want to observe. And so we think, surely within three years, we've been able to see if you're quick-tempered. Or maybe you're a lover of money. Uh, maybe you don't have self-control. And so we want to have some time, just pump the brake a bit. We don't want to be rushed into putting someone to be an elder. So we've looked at an elder's moral character, an elder's home life elders maturity and now we see that he must be someone who has a good reputation look down in verse 7 moreover he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil so these are the qualifications of an elder and we try to take them very seriously we're not looking to simply fill a position um and I love our elders that we have. We truly believe that Jay, Bruce, and Dustin are the men described in this passage. 
when I'm reading this passage and I look at those men, I go, yeah, that, that's, that's them. And then we also have, we have an elder candidate um, who's actually slipped out, uh, Caleb Brownfield, I think, is Caleb teaching this morning. So Caleb is actually teaching with the kids right now, and, and I believe Caleb also looks like the man described in 1 Timothy 3. So he is kind of a candidate this year. He's not been voted in, but at some point that will um, be the case. The congregation will look at him and go, and, and you know, kind of look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and other passages, Acts 20, and go, does, this, does these passages and Caleb, do they match up? And so at some point we'll... That will come to a, to a head that we'll have to either say Caleb's not ready yet or, or he is. And so this is what an elder should look like. Um, we're actually, uh, the elders are actually looking at, we're, we're developing a document to kind of just help our congregation um, just look at these qualifications and, and, and what does that look like? So we're, we're developing a document to kind of help you identify what, what this what what this kind of man would look like, and so hopefully we'll be able to present that some point this year, um, just to help us guide us to make sure that we do our best to make sure that every elder that is a part of HCC would be someone that would be described as First Timothy three or Titus one that they'd be a biblical elder. So this is what an elder should look like, and then now we come to the second office that God has established in order to care for His bride. Now this is amazing to think when God's you know, before the foundation of the world, he, he, he knew he was going to create this thing called the church, this institution. He knew that Christ was going to come and die and become the groom, and this church would be the bride of Christ. And as he's thinking about how to structure it, out of all the ways that he could have created the leadership for the church and structure you know, these positions, could have been five or ten positions he he, he just had these two. These are the only two positions that we see described in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying the other positions are wrong. Like, we have trustees. We have a missions committee. Um, we, we have, um, you know, uh, children's helpers. We have a youth director. We have music director. I'm not saying those things are wrong, I'm not saying they're not biblical. I'm just saying they're not commanded to have in, from Scripture. And out of all the positions you see churches have, these are the two. You know, God doesn't say, I'm going to have elder, deacon, and a marketing strategist. That way they can, you know, really reach the community. Good marketing strategy. It's just elder and deacon. God says, you just do that, do that well, we're good to go. You can have your trustees and... You know, there's no youth director at this point because there's no youth, right? We've got to understand that just this culture that, Tim, that Paul's writing to, you had children and adults. And over the years, we've created this kind of this category of adolescence or youth. So there were no youth. They would go, what's a youth director? What's a youth? So here's this category. You have Elder deacon. So let's look at the deacon now in verse 8. Deacons. The word deacon is a transliteration from the Greek. Transliteration means that a word remains in its original language even while translating it into a new language. So what does that mean? 
It means that the word deacon that, you're, that you see in your Bible is actually a Greek word that they just left in Greek. Instead of translating it into servant, which is what it means, the translators have left it in its original form, deacon. 29 times this word is found as a noun in the New Testament. And only three of those 29 times is it translated as deacon. All the other times it's servant. Two of those three times is actually here in this passage. The other one is found in Philippians 1. It's found in the greeting when Paul's writing to the overseers and deacons at the church at Philippi. And so Philippians 1, it doesn't really add anything to our understanding of this word deacon. Deacon literally means to serve. So when you see the word serve in the New Testament, it is the word deacon. And deacon has the same idea to be like a waiter or a server at a table. We see the origins of this office probably from Acts chapter 6. I say probably because in Acts 6, it doesn't, it talks about serving, but there the translators don't use the word deacon. They keep it serve. In Acts 6, the widows were not being physically cared for. Uh, Some people expressed their concern to the apostles. The apostles told them, the congregation, to find men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of good wisdom. So if we're just looking at Acts 6, we can see three purposes of a deacon. First, to meet physical needs of the church. The widows were being neglected when it came to the distribution of food. So the apostles say to the deacons, hey, these deacons, you, you guys need to resolve this issue. You care for these widows. Second, to promote unity in the body. This division had arisen, and the deacons were able to help keep unity in, in the body. Third, to support the ministry of the word. This one's interesting because James reminds us that pure and undefiled religion is this, to care for widows and orphans and their afflictions. So here's an opportunity for the apostles to have pure and undefiled religion, and when the need's brought to them, they go, we're going to have somebody else do it, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and so they tell the deacons, hey, why don't you guys do that so that we can be devoted to the teaching and preaching of God's word, so that we can study God's word. We could do that, but so could you guys. Why don't you guys do that so we can keep doing what, we've, what we feel like God's called us to do? So that's three purposes we see from Acts 6. Now in 1 Timothy 3, we see the deacon's qualifications. And at first glance, they seem to be very similar to those of the, uh, to the um, overseers. We see that deacons should be dignified, not double-tongued. A deacon must mean what they say and say what they mean. They must avoid the sin of flattery and speak the truth in love. They are not to be addicted to much wine. Addiction means it has some power or control over you. As a deacon, you are called to have self-control. So how could a deacon be ready to serve others when you yourself not in your in your best mind? They're not to be greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So if you go back to this waiter-server analogy, 
The waiters should know the menu, right? That, that's a good waiter, like when they just know the menu cover to cover. If someone comes in and, and has a question about the menu, he should be able to know what they're talking about. It's like when you're at, you know, what does this have on it? They can just kind of tell you it has this, 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 comes with this. You, you don't like when they say, well, I'm not really sure. And can I get this with it? I don't know. I'm going to have to go ask. Like you want that waiter just to, boom, they, they know what they're talking about. In the same way, deacons should know the Bible cover to cover. If someone has a question, then you should know what what they're talking about. So how are you to hold the mystery of the faith if you don't even know the mysteries of the faith? Then verse 10, we see, let them also be tested first. This might be part of that, tied in with verse um, um, the previous verse, verse 9. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Again, blameless does not mean perfect, but rather repentant when they um, do commit sin. That of being tested first is why we have established that a deacon must be a member of our church for two years. Elder, we say three years. Deacon, two years. Again, there's no biblical command for this. This is just our way to help observe or test the individual before we put them into this important position. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Okay, the phrase, their wives, which most of your Bibles probably have. Not all Bibles, but probably most of your Bibles will say their wives. Um, Their wives in the Greek can be tricky. This is why some translations, like the New American Standard, which probably maybe some of you use that. It's a really, really good translation, but kind of wooden. It's really not, it doesn't read very well, but it's a very, very accurate translation. The NAS does not render this passage as their wives, but as women. It's, it's very faithful to the Greek. And in the Greek, the word there is just missing in the Greek. It's not actually there. The there is not there. And the word for wives is often translated as women. So it is possible that this is not referring to the deacons' wives, but to the women who serve alongside the deacons. And this is why our church has deaconesses. In Romans 16, Paul refers to Phoebe as a servant of the church. Now, this could just simply mean that Phoebe served, like lowercase s. Like if you, you know, did something for someone, you say, oh, you know, thank you for serving them. It wouldn't make you a servant, capital S, but you serve them. It, you know, it's not rather, it's not like you're holding a position. So that could be what... Phoebe is in Romans 16. But if deacons do not have any spiritual authority in the church, then there's no reason why a woman couldn't be considered for this position. And I think a deaconess can be extremely valuable. They minister in ways that would be difficult for the male deacons. So we have female deacons, we have male deacons at our church. And we see this play out. You know, what, let me give you the example. What if a family, a young family in the church, maybe the husband passes away, it would not be very wise for one of our male deacons to visit the widow on a daily basis. It would, it would make far more sense for the deaconess, the female deacon, to make that visit and care for that, for that widow. We also have many single ladies in our church. It would not be wise for an older married man to, to text these single ladies just checking in like, you know, how, how are you? How are you doing? Uh, it makes a lot more sense if another lady is reaching out to them, which is what we have. So in our church, 
Um, if you are a single lady, and in fact, all, all ladies in our church, if you're a member of this church, there's a deaconess uh, who, who is assigned to you. So they check in on you and uh, you know, just ask how they can be praying for you. And um, then we have male deacons checking in on, on men. I think that's beautiful. Now let's look down at verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Again, we see the importance of home life. There's something profound here in this passage that we have seen that an unruly home will lead to an unruly church. If you can't manage your own home, how in the world are you going to manage God's house? I'm so thankful for our deacons, our deaconesses, and their love for their families. I feel like our church has greatly benefited because we have taken these two offices, the office of elder and deacon, deaconess, very seriously, not just nominating anyone with a pulse. That's what a lot of churches do. Just, you know, we, we need, and some churches will say, their constitution says, like, you have to have X number of deacons. So sometimes that gets really hard to put qualified number in that position. So then it ends up being like, okay, we still need two more. Anybody this morning, like, anybody willing to do this for us? And you end up getting people who aren't qualified, and it ends up not going well. Sadly, most churches are not structured this way of taking these two positions, this office, these offices, seriously. Um, even churches who say they believe the, the Bible, the Word of God, will miss the mark on these two offices. Now, I would say they, they miss, at least with elder, they, they don't believe in a plurality of elder. They just have a senior pastor. And I'm not saying it's wrong to call someone the senior pastor. You can have a plurality of elders and still designate one to be a senior pastor. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying it's wrong if he is the only one allowed to be the pastor or elder. 1 Timothy chapter 4, which we will see next week, Paul writes, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Here we see the council, which is obviously, you don't have much of a council if it's just one, right? Council of elders, and the word elder is plural there. So you have this council of elders laying hands on this young pastor. The only reason a church should have only one pastor is if the only man who is if he's the only man who meets these qualifications. Then, when it comes to deacons, most churches, especially Baptist churches, would treat the deacons as if they are the council of elders. It's, it's so bizarre that they read this passage, but yet they will treat the deacons as they are the elders. Most Baptist churches, the deacons are the ones who kind of rule and lead and guide the church. They're the ones who tell the senior pastor what to do. And this is just not biblical. The deacons have zero spiritual authority in the New Testament. So as we look at these two positions, we see God creating two positions who will help care for his bride. He loves his bride, his church. And he wants the church to be cared for, to be you know, nurtured and, and, and 
valued. And, he's, and he leaves these two positions to care for his bride. And these two positions really just reflect who Jesus is. Think about Christ for a moment. First Peter 5 is actually a passage that we could have preached this morning about elders. First Peter 5 verse, uh, verse 1 says this. So I exhort the elders among you, again plural, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So here's this description of a shepherd. He's not to be domineering. Um, he's not to be, you know, seeking shameful gain. He is watching over the congregation. And then notice there's this chief shepherd. And let me just tell you, I am not your chief shepherd. I am lowercase f shepherd. Bruce, Jay, Dustin, we are not the chief shepherd. That's Christ and Christ alone. Christ is the good shepherd that we see from John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Okay, Adam's going to fail you. Bruce and Jay and Dustin are going to let you down, but not Christ. Christ is the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not know his own sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Do you know Jesus today? Jesus knows you. He's the good shepherd. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Isn't that beautiful? These two passages, we see Jesus being the good shepherd. He is the chief shepherd. He's a good shepherd. He's watching over his sheep, and he is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. He knows you. I mean, what shepherd will lay down his life for a sheep? It's just a sheep. Come on. She says, I love my sheep. I'll die for my sheep. And Jesus laid down his life so that we could keep our life. So we see him functioning as a shepherd, but then he also came to deacon. In Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus said, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Are you kidding me? The Son of Man did not come to be served? That's how people expected the Son of Man to come. He's coming, leaving his throne, coming to earth, taking on flesh. Serve me, serve me. Look how great I am. I am the eternal God. 
Jesus says, no, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And he did that in many ways. I mean, all throughout his public ministry, he served others. I mean, he washed the feet of the disciples, including Judas, who was getting ready to betray him. I'd wash those feet really hard. You're going to get it. I know what you're about to do. And he served. He deaconed. And ultimately, the way he served by laying down his life as a ransom for many. In Jesus' death and resurrection, we see that he has the heart of a servant leader. He served us by laying down his life so that we can have eternal life and life to its fullest. If we are going to have a healthy church, then we have to take these two offices very seriously. And the good news is, is even if we have an elder or deacon who do not reflect these positions well, like we see in Ephesus, we still have a good shepherd who has served his bride perfectly. Jesus will never let you down. Like I said, I'm going to. I may already have. So will Dustin. So will Jay. So will Bruce. So will your deacons, deaconesses. But Jesus will never let you down. He is faithful to care for and to serve his bride perfectly. Cling to him. Let's pray. Father, as the band comes back up to just sing for us the truths of Scripture, the message that we find in the hope of the gospel, Lord, may we just be in awe how much you do love us and care for us. And that one of the ways that you love and care for us is that you've left us with the church. And within the church, you've left us with these positions with people who should provide care for your bride. That for those who are hurting, that they would help mend and bring back the strength and those who have kind of wandered astray that we bring back into the fold. So we thank, we, we thank you for leaving us with instructions here. Even though your word, it's, it's an ancient text, it's still relevant for us today. So may we, may we be a church that trusts your word, that it's not outdated, that we don't need to look to business strategies of today to see how to grow your church, but that we just... We just trust your word that it's sufficient for us. Lord, we're thankful for how you're at work in our church. Help us to be healthy. That we'd be structured in a way that would be pleasing to you and obedient to your word. And that we know that when we do that, then that, that it gives our people the best chance to be healthy. So may we be faithful to you. May we be faithful ministers of the gospel. May we go out and be deacons and serve in different ways. And we should all play this role in personal ministry that we serve others. Lord, we thank you for uh, all that you've done for us, and we can't wait for your return. Until then, may we be people who have our eyes open for opportunities to, to share about your good news. May we 
be bold to tell others about the gospel. May we love others well. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.